Kia welcome to First Up. It's Rahina, Monday the 3rd of October. Kona Trubra Coming up, we have the latest from on the stadium stampede in Indonesia and thousands are without power after Hurricane Ian. This week is your last opportunity to vote for your mayor, councillors and local board members. Why is turnout so low? And the remains of more than 60 Māori and Moriori, many of them stolen by a notorious Austrian grave robber, have finally returned to their descendants in Aotearoa. The pain has been intergenerational and you can feel that today with all of the whānau and the hapū and the iwi that came to see their ancestors. To be able to be here and to witness the descendants of these ancestors they were taken, it's a heartbreaking experience. Thanks for that, Peter. Atamaria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nick Trubridge in for Nathan this week as he rests up. Well, rests up's one way of putting it. I suppose he's probably being run ragged by the kids, isn't he? It's the first week of school holidays, of course. Uh, but alas, we're going to begin this morning in the United States where it's uh, hurricanes all round. And joining me from New York is Catherine Furkin with the latest. Uh, morning to you, Catherine. Could we just start with Hurricane Ian? What is the latest on recovery efforts? Yeah, well, Nick, the bad news is really continuing in the wake of Hurricane Ian. Authorities confirming just in the last hour that the death toll is now at least 54. The confirmed fatalities include 47 in Florida, four in North Carolina and three in Cuba, where Ian, of course, first made landfall back on Tuesday. Again, there are suggestions that that number will keep rising over the next few days. Of course, the recovery effort and the cleanup here is just a massive project More than 1,000 people have been rescued along Florida's southwestern coast alone. And what's interesting now is, of course, that emergency crews are still really struggling to get to some areas which have been completely cut off and isolated. One of those areas is Pine Island. It's the largest barrier island off Florida's Gulf Coast. There's only one bridge that will get you out there and it has been completely destroyed in the storm. So now residents there who are stuck, they're waiting for helicopters to come in and get them. Yeah, and in the meantime, it's it's sort of more bad news, really, isn't it? Because there is a new hurricane developing elsewhere. Yes, that's a good point. We're keeping a close eye on Hurricane Orlean. It was a Category 4 storm earlier today. It's now heading in as a Category 3, currently bringing winds of around 205 kilometres an hour. It's looking like it's going to hit Mexico's northwest Pacific coast tomorrow. Authorities warning it could bring flood-inducing rainfall of up to 25 centimetres in some places. But generally, Nick, it doesn't look like it will hit as badly as Hurricane Ian. But of course, we know these things can change quickly. So we are keeping a very close eye on this one. Yeah, and preparedness will be high nonetheless, won't it, given what's happened in uh, Florida? Well, absolutely. I think no one is taking this for granted now. So even though it is looking like it's going to hit in in not too populated areas, they are still issuing alerts and warnings and residents there already getting prepared for the worst. Let's change tax slightly. What's happening with the Supreme Courts, Catherine? Yes, well, it has been a tumultuous year for the Supreme Court, as you know. We had that dramatic ruling on abortion rights, which resulted in angry protests on the streets across the country, even some angry protests right outside the homes of justices. There was that unprecedented leaking of the draft decision, as well as a bench retirement, which was then followed by the appointment of the first black woman. So a really big year that's been for the Supreme Court, and now perhaps an even bigger one to come. 
The new term starts tomorrow, October 3, here in the US, and already there are some really, I guess, hot-button issues on the horizon. They're going to be looking at things like affirmative action, free speech versus workplace discrimination, voter rights, issues of election boundaries. But first up, they have a major environmental case uh, on the horizon. They're going to be hearing arguments from an Idaho couple who want to build a home on a property that has been deemed a protected wetland. That might not sound terribly exciting to you, but it will have major, major impacts for Americans here because it could redefine the scope of the country's clean water regulations. Mm, And just briefly, uh, a story we've been covering, well, for decades, really, the opioid crisis, of course. Uh, It's getting worse and you've got some pretty harrowing stats, I understand. It is getting worse and the statistics are incredible. There are now 195 Americans being killed daily. That's every single day from opioid overdoses. Worse than the gun violence here, which really is extraordinary when you think about it. The, uh, the fentanyl, the synthetic opioid, is what's really causing the issues, and it's being brought in by Mexican cartels. Um, right now, authorities are trying to, to stop that, obviously. They've got some task forces that say they're going to focus on this. But what we're worrying about now is that these cartels are really starting to target children. Some of these drugs coming in are rainbow-coloured. They're planning on being disguised even as candy which authorities are now warning for Halloween, which is coming up here, for parents to be really vigilant on the candy that children are receiving. So it's really worrying, really quite scary, and it's really become an epidemic here. Mm, Yeah, scary stuff indeed. Thanks, Catherine. Catherine Rich joining us there from New York with all the latest from the US. Catherine Firkin, rather. Catherine Rich is someone completely different. Sorry, Uh, Catherine. Uh, Thanks for your time this morning. Uh, We're going to go to Indonesia now. At least 125 people have died in a stampede at a football match that has become one of the world's worst stadium disasters. The tragedy occurred after police apparently tear-gassed attendees and a warning, some of the details in this report by the BBC's Jonathan Head may be distressing. Videos posted by fans at the stadium in Malang showed the disaster unfolding almost as it happened. It had been a hard-fought match between two teams with a history of rivalry. The home side had lost two goals to three and some of its fans streamed onto the pitch in protest. They were running skirmishes with the police, who then decided to fire tear gas, which drifted into the stands, causing the above-capacity crowd to surge for the exits. That's where many of them were crushed. Unconscious fans were carried out of the stadium to the ambulances which had begun arriving to get them to hospital. This survivor described choking on tear gas. It was everywhere, he said, inside and outside the stadium, even in the shops and stalls nearby. Indonesian President Joko Widodo ordered an immediate investigation and for all Premier League matches to be suspended. I hope this will be the last tragedy of this kind in our country, he said. Outside the stadium, the burnt shells of police trucks bore witness to the anger of the crowd. Indonesian football has long been troubled by fan violence and poor management. But the way the police handled the crowd trouble in Malang, in particular the use of tear gas inside a packed stadium, must surely be the main focus of this investigation. 
It is coming up 13 minutes past five and you're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nick Trubridge, in for Nathan this morning. We're keen for your feedback. Uh, Of course, we've got a story coming up soon on voting. Have you voted yet? If you haven't voted yet, why haven't you voted? I mean, do you not like the candidates? Are you worried your vote won't mean a lot? Are you worried about the sort of the power or lack thereof of councillors and mayors um, these days? And also, um, because Nathan's on school holidays, some school holiday activities, and let's make them... Let's make them free ones, things that don't, uh, you know, cost you an arm and a leg. You can text us to 101. You can tweet us at FirstUpRNZ. Of course, you can email us to firstupatrnz.co.nz. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at FirstUpRNZ. And it is, of course, Monday morning, so time to cross to our European correspondent, Nita Blake-Person. Morena. Kia ora, Nick. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Keeping warm and yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Can't complain. It's heating up here. It was hot. It was nice and warm this morning, actually. Nice treat. Um, but anyway, into the business. Uh, the Russians are retreating. And good news for the Ukraine? Well, it's certainly a setback for Russia. Um, yeah, the forces who've been uh, pushed out of the city of Liman, it's been seen as a really major kind of development in uh, the battle on the front lines there. It's a key city and leads into the Donbass region, which Putin, as of last week, now claims is part of Russia. Ukrainians and Western allies are chalking this up as a major win and say it'll create new problems for Russia's military as they've been using it as a real hub. Um, and it has, though, prompted the Chechen leader and hardline Moscow LA Ramzan Kadyrov to comment that Russia should consider using low-yield nuclear weapons in the face of such defeat. So quite daunting uh, comments there, especially in the face of what uh, Putin has been saying of late. Uh, Liman's capture also puts additional pressure on the Kremlin back in Russia, Russia which has been facing a lot of criticism over the conscription of, of hundreds of thousands of men to fight in this war. Um, Ukrainian officials say that the Russian fighters who've been pushback had been given the chance to surrender and they're claiming they'd face better treatment as prisoners of war than from the Russian military leadership. So a key development on the front lines, yeah, for both sides really today. Yeah, and pretty scary comments around nuclear weapons, as you say. Uh, In the meantime, ruptures of the Nord Stream natural gas pipeline, how serious is this? Pretty, pretty serious. Serious not just for um, Europe's uh, energy supplies, but also for the environment, as um, we've come to find out. These pipelines uh, link Russia's Europe uh, gas supplies rather with Europe. And earlier this week, there were several explosions detected in the Baltic Sea near Denmark and Sweden, shortly before damage and leaks was found to four sections of the pipelines. There were these huge gas bubbles um, flowing up into the Baltic Sea. In Sweden and Denmark, it's in both the economic zones that this damage has occurred. They say it's it's no accident. There wasn't an earthquake or anything else which has naturally created these issues. But as of yet, no one has claimed or confirmed exactly what's led to it. Uh, because the pipelines have been a bit of a kind of flashpoint between Europe and Russia and the tensions over the invasion of Ukraine, no gas was actually being pumped through the system. But there was some residual fuel in there, and that's now what's bubbling up. And research 
researchers have confirmed it's been the single single biggest release of methane ever recorded, which is not good news for the environment, given we know methane is highly damaging, uh, far more potent than short-lived carbon dioxide. Researchers estimating the leak from one of just these four leaks is more than 22,000 kilograms per hour, roughly the equivalent to burning 286,000 kilograms of coal every hour. Uh, that gas is finally expected to stop leaking tomorrow, but uh, not a positive development either for the energy crisis or the uh, fight against climate change. No, not at all. We've touched on this a fair bit uh, as well, Nita, the cost of living in Germany, where you are, but there's some help to bring it down. A little bit, yes. A tiny, the cost of tiny living, of course. <laughs> we'll take it, though. Um, much like, you know, many places around the world feeling this cost of living pump, Germany is not immune. Uh, the uh, inflation rate in September, the highest it's been in 25 years, 10%. Energy prices, a huge factor in that. They were up 43.9% in September this year compared to September last year. Um, some of that is being put down to the fact that that coincided with the end of the €9 euro public public transport ticket, uh, which was hugely popular over here. Um, the, the government announced this week an energy relief package worth up to kind of $200 billion. So they are throwing a lot of cash to try and help people out. But here in Berlin, there has been a, you know, a bright spot over the past few days. The nine euro ticket that ran out, there's been lots of um, squabbling, shall we call it, between politicians and the government over what would follow because it was wildly successful. 38 million people grabbed that ticket. 10% of journeys taken replaced what would have been a car trip. So it was a boost not just to wallets, but again to the climate. Uh, so so successful that the government uh, kind of reversed its decision that there would be no continuation. Berlin managed to lock in a €29 euro monthly pass for the next three months, and that's just rolled out and will be in place until there's a nationwide discount ticket from next year. So it's a, it's about a third of what a monthly ticket would usually be and uh, certainly being seen here as a little winter warmer as the, the days start to get much cooler on the side of the world. Yeah, nice way of putting it. And of course, you've moved from, well, one high-cost city, I suppose you could say, in Auckland to Berlin. So how have you found that transition? I uh, had been bracing for things to be particularly expensive here, but I think it depends what you're looking at. Uh, New Zealand housing, I think, still far and beyond more expensive and rent and, um, you know, your, your accommodation costs much higher there. But things are getting more expensive here. Um, food and groceries, um, much cheaper, but there are kind of uh, unexpected costs that will crop up. I would say overall, though, Berlin feels cheaper to me than it does living in New Zealand. Is that right? Yeah, and I, I was surprised as anyone. But um, it, I guess when you've got rent to consider in New Zealand, mm. it's such a massive part yeah. of your budget that um, when that's not so dear, things things don't feel quite so scary sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Hey, thanks, Nita. Uh, stay warm over there in Berlin. It's getting cold. Nita Blake-Person joining us there from Berlin with the latest from Europe. It is just coming up 20 minutes past five. I'm Nick Trubridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, the one and only Minister of Fruit and Veg, Glenn Forsyth, joins us to talk carrots, kumina and kohlrabi. This is uh, the last week you've got the opportunity to vote in local body elections, so we sent Leonard Powell out to look at why 
turnout is so low. And we hear from uh, some of those behind the repatriation of the remains behind 60 Māori and Moriori from Austria. There they are standing in the rear. Big ones, small ones, some Right, time to check out the fresh produce at the Monday morning markets with the, our Minister of Fruit and Veg, Glenn Forsyth. Uh, morning at Glenn. Morning at Nick, how are you? You're not too bad, but I hear you had a bit of a wet weekend, not the best start to spring. Fill us in, you had to um, pick up an umbrella I hear. Exactly, yeah, still living the good life in Auckland, getting around all the markets and went for a crazy walk on Saturday from Flatbush to Silvery Park and back again. I Ted the dog loved it, but the best purchase at the mall was an umbrella. I mean, one wonders where spring has gone to or if it's even arrived, but there are signs spring is here. Ground temperatures are slowly warming up, although this weekend is not looking flash. New season potatoes are only weeks away now, and there was certainly an increase in supply this morning at the market floors on vegetables such as new season capsicums, courgettes and asparagus. So, yep, they're coming. And if you can afford the time and shop around, you will see kind of prices of the um you know of these at stalls that brought up large today cauliflower eased ever so slightly however broccoli is still very short so thank goodness asparagus is plentiful as a substitute and speaking of this rainy spring so far there were more new season new zealand blueberries and strawberries appearing this morning five plus a day hits for october are avocados asparagus and tangelos and true to form they are spot on with all three nick yeah, all good options. Um, let's continue with some veg. Uh, goodbyes this week. We're talking kumara and a bunch of other stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. It's timely to mention three stars this winter gone on veggies were carrots, kumara and white butter mushrooms. They got us through, still are, and their prices didn't fluctuate too much at all. Uh, there were purple kumara this season as well, a great addition to that kumara medley. There are still Australian tomatoes here, so if you do prefer New Zealand ones, be sure to ask your store. Lettuce and fancy lettuce varieties, round beans and cucumbers, they rounded off veggies that were in better supply today. Now, a vegetable we wanted to mention again from last season is the kohlrabi. Have you heard of that one or seen it? Kohlrabi, definitely heard of it. Can't picture it, if I'm honest. Okay, okay, so Kelvin uh, Gedge grows the red and green varieties in Gisborne and says chefs would lose a star just for including kohlrabi on their menu. But these days consumers aren't interested in heritage vegetables, especially those with a lot of nutritional value. Now it looks like a turnip with shoots and leaves and it tastes like broccoli stems, a little sweeter even. And the whole vegetable is loaded with vitamins, minerals and fibre. So yeah, give it a try for its health benefits, absolutely. Now I love it in a fritters mix or sliced into stir fries, it's that simple. And if you're lucky to live in Gizzy, Calvin also sells at the farmer's markets and is thinking of planting ginger. So yeah, he's right into it. Yeah, it does. You're right. It looks like sort of a broccoli stem, but it's rounded at the root, right? And you can use the leaves as well? That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yep, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Um, Hey, look, imported fruit has been affected by the exchange rate like everything else. Fill us in on this. Yeah, we have some sad news with price increases in the coming months to imported products, uh, you know, processed in US dollars like bananas and pineapples due to the exchange rate, as you've mentioned. I mean, heck, I remember in the 90s, bananas were $1.99 a kilo tops. Now it's a dollar more a kilo onto that for sure. But, you know, they are certainly a staple. From Australia, we have their lovely Afora mandarins, hack and pears and their miniola tangelos, which have a raised neck on their fruit at the stem end. Look out for them. Back to our shores, we chime in with good volumes of lemons and two special um, specialty lines, including tamarillos and passion fruit were 
we're, we're there at the market. A little more on our fruit of the week last week, New Zealand Tangelos. Messy to peel early on in their season, so best to cut in quarters for the school to work lunch and transport in smaller plastic containers, if you like, so they don't spoil. A bit of a dying breed, unfortunately, but they have a beautiful flavour. So we do hope our few growers left mm. of them continue to grow. And, and we have them until Christmas, and they do get easier to peel in a month or so. So, yeah, try them. What, what do you do with them, Glenn? Oh, well, they're just a refreshing fruit. I, I eat them over the sink. But, you know, it, it's, <laughs> it's a refreshing fruit, <laughs> nice flavour, and, you know, not, not one just to ignore. Yeah, give it a try. You, I, I could, like them a little bit chilled too. Yeah. Could you, could you put, would they work in like a crumble or not really? I've not I've not heard of it in a crumble, but I've you know I've heard of people that um, putting them in a salad, which is yeah, ah, interesting yeah. little bit of a tang. Yeah, because yeah. they've got a funny sort of a flavour to them, don't they? That that well, they sort do. Of, they're yes. not necessarily they're not super sweet, are they? No, not super sweet, but they do have a, a funny fav- flavour, and it's nice, and and you know they appeal to me. But another fruit which I haven't seen just yet, uh, the ugly fruit, and and that's got a, a very unique and, and funny flavour too, but but gorgeous. So there are some you know other fruits on the edges there that are worth a try. Yeah, Mavash has just said squeeze some olive oil, some salt, and some salad dressing. So there you go. Yeah, yes, and they make a terrific um, juice. Lovely. Yes. Hey, thanks, Glenn. Yeah. Okay. That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. Alrighty. Joining us from our business desk for business time is Giles Beckford. Morena to you, Giles. Morena to you, Nick. Uh, I've got a note here on brand values. Indeed. We get a, a, a flood of interesting reports, many of them which go straight into the spam filter or the deleted file or the big round bin. Um, I plucked this one out of the big round bin because... Yeah, it, it it was a survey, in, a global survey. I saw the headline, Punching Above Our Weight, Brand New Zealand Stronger and More Valuable Than Ever. And I thought, intriguing? What does it mean? Um, and it, it's a, a global survey that looks at not just cars and companies and uh, commodities and, you know, corporate consumer brands, but also countries. And it turns out that New Zealand ranks 39th uh, as the most valuable brand in the world. Now, I'm not quite sure what we do with that. Apparently, we've risen three places, and that was one of the stronger risers. Um, it might be that you use it as a marketing tool by saying, look, you know, everybody loves the way that uh, this country coped with the COVID pandemic. They like the environment. They like the people. Um, you know, they like the attractions. Uh, you put a dollar value on that and you say, there you go. Mm. Your economy is worth or your brand is worth, in fact, somewhere in the region of 248 billion US dollars. Let's just do a quick double and say it's somewhere in the region of, say, five, 520 billion uh, New Zealand dollars. Mm. Um, and that's up around 30 billion dollars uh, on the year. Okay. No surprise that uh, the top three by value 
should be the US, China and Germany. Um, you know, three of the biggest economies in the world. But they don't just rank you in terms of the value of your brand, but also the strength of the brand. In other words, um, you know, the things you can't necessarily put a dollar value on, um, it could be our environment, our scenery, just the loveliness of the people. Um, but whatever it is, we've risen in the uh, rankings there as well. We're ranked number 13 out of 100. Uh, and once again, you know, it's something that could be used to the country's marketing advantage. Mm. I'm not so, you know, not so sure of it. I'm always a bit suspicious when they say somebody punching above their weight. I mean, I know where it comes from in a bank in a, in a boxing term, but um, you know, quite often it's very easily used, but very hardly hard to prove. Uh, yeah, in that yeah, one, yeah. Hard, hard to quantify, perhaps. Hey, um, very briefly, Giles, in a, in about a minute, have have you got your Costco membership card, and are you going to fly up to Auckland? Uh, no, I haven't, uh, and no, I won't. But on a more serious note, I do want to ask you, uh, you know, we we exist in a sort of duopoly when it comes to supermarkets in New Zealand, don't we? Do you think a, a business like Costco will make a difference here, or is it kind of, it, it's obviously big, uh, big sort of bin retail, big it's bulk niche. retail, isn't it? So it, maybe, maybe not, not no, the desired no. effect. Uh, no, it, 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 it's going to have a niche effect. It will un- undoubtedly uh, shake up things a bit in parts in the part of Auckland that it dominates. I mean, I'm not quite sure that you would see somebody say from Pukekohe or from um, Mangere necessarily making all the way. The, the trip all the way up to Costco, you know, it, it, some obviously will, but in, in terms of a general shop, uh, probably not. Um, it will have a niche effect in that area. You know, when they set up uh, smaller branches in, say, Wellington and Christchurch, which is what they're talking about, um, it undoubtedly will have a, an impact in those areas. Just in the same way that you have a massive big, say, pack and save in one part of the city, um, shakes up that part of the, the city. You get some decent competition prices, perhaps. Mm. But um, you know, it d- doesn't matter 10, 15 k's away. Uh, and this is a really good deal on, on, on petrol or the like. So, yeah, you know, what they need, you know, the, the best prospects are, I would think, for the warehouse to get more involved. Um, and uh, perhaps yeah. the, the government's going to have to bribe somebody uh, from overseas to, to yeah. come in here because otherwise the duopoly will continue um, and the best hope will be in terms, I think, of yeah. the wholesale arrangements. That's right, yeah. Hey, thanks, Giles. Uh, Giles Beckford there with our business news. There'll be more in Morning Report and the markets very briefly. The New Zealand dollar is being traded at 55 US cents, 87 Australian cents, 57 euro cents, 50 British pence, 3.97 yuan and 80 Japanese yen. And it's time for sport. Felicity Reid joins us in the studio. Uh, this stampede in Indonesia, what's the latest? And can you talk to us a little bit more about cause, what, what appears to be behind it? So we have seen an increasing number of, this number that they first came out with was around the 130s, now it's around the 170s of people involved in this. It has been a stampede, as you say. It was tear gas from the police had put out on these spectators who were exiting the stadium. They'd, it was 
a game between two better rivals and one mm. of the teams actually wasn't allowed to purchase, well, their fans for that team weren't actually allowed to purchase tickets for this event. But it, it appears that this had been, it looked like a 30,000 spectator stadium capacity and somebody from Indonesia had actually put out that it was 42,000 spectators in there. So it was a lot of people and then a result that one team obviously was unhappy with spectators had sort of gone onto the field after the game mm. and then they tried to get out and like tear gas is like FIFA the governing body of football says that you're not allowed to use tear gas that isn't something that you can use to control the crowd that's what has happened in this instance as well which has contributed towards everything that's happened and we don't really see this well obviously we don't really see this here but some of the crowds at these football games can get like seriously raucous, right? You can have them partitioned off from each other, as you say. Some mm-hmm. fans not allowed to buy tickets to certain games. So it, it, it's this is sort of the culmination of well, crowds getting out of control, and then a response to that, right? Absolutely, like football crowds. I guess across all sports, but football crowds, like you say, can be notorious for this kind of behaviour that perhaps does lead to needing to be policed or taking mm. control of, whether it's setting off flares or whether it is too many people crushed in or whether it is anything, like interactions between fans which can lead to this. It, yeah, like it's not the first, even in, in Indonesia, it's not the first time that mm. something, this is obviously quite tragic, but not something that's the first time between a match like this has happened. Mm. Uh, the NRL grand final was last night in Sydney. I was going to stay up and I'm glad I didn't because it was a bit of an anti-climax, right? One of the most one-sided in history. Penrith Panthers have gone back to back 28-12 over the Parramatta Eels. You know, <laughs> yeah. this is a, a bit of battle between some beef in the west of Sydney. Yeah, uh, you yeah, know, two teams entrenched to hate each other. But yeah. And and, and 28 12, but it was 28 0 until about 10 minutes left, right? Exactly. Um, I was just listening to the post match press conference, and the Panthers captain, Nathan Cleary, said that that was one of the most dominant halves that he's seen in the last three years that they've been playing, mm. which is pretty impressive because they've won 67 out of the 78 last games that they've played since 2020. So this is Penrith, the domination of the NRL. Isn't I know. It? And, and I was reading a headline on, on the NRL website this morning talking about how you know this is really a team that shows no signs of slowing down right they could very much conceivably win again next year they just look that good yeah it's that dynasty right they're throwing that word around afterwards um the coach Ivan Cleary was saying that for him it was extra special this year because some of those players will actually be leaving Mm. some of the can't afford to keep them right yeah players coaching staff he says this group won't actually ever be together again as a entirety so for him this was I guess He wanted everything to come together on that day, and it did. Mm. Yeah. And uh, briefly, do we have a result on the? I assume we have a result on the rally from the weekend. Yeah, we do. So, rally New Zealand that was won by Calais Robin Pira, so that he turned twenty-two on Saturday, won it on Sunday, became the youngest World Rally Championship ever. And from the New Zealand perspective, Hayden Patton won the World Rally Two level, and he also took out by that the New Zealand Rally as well. And it'll be back next year. Or what's what's the what's the are they booked in or what's the the go with that? Money might be the sticking point on this one. Right. Um, just even before this rally was on this year, there was some uncertainty about whether this would actually be the last one. Hmm. Other cashed up countries are coming. It is to be on the world rally circuit is quite 
I guess, lucrative for lots of countries. So it shows off your country in quite a good way. So New Zealand are trying to get that again, but it will come down to, I guess, that money and being able to convince the World Rally Championship that it is the right place. And just very briefly, Hayden Patton, of course, he was in Tier 2. So this is, is this sort of the twilight of his career? Oh, I think <laughs> during the weekend he was saying that he performs better in the higher-powered cars, which should suggest he wants to go back up to that Because he was position. in an electric, right? That's something that he's very passionate about. He's built his own electric car as well. So that is, a, these ga- cars are hybrids, mm. but he was, yeah, electric is probably where he wants to go as well. Yeah, yeah. okay. Hey, thanks, Felicity. Uh, Felicity Reid there with our business news. It is... And of course, Felicity covers sports, not business. Sorry, I've still got Giles on my mind. He's so compelling. Uh, apologies, Felicity. Right, it is uh, bang on 20 minutes to six. I'm Nick Trubridge, you're first up on RNZ National. Still to come, uh, this is of course your last opportunity to vote for Mayor, Councillors and local board members. Leonard Powell asked the question, why is voter turnout so low? And we speak to some of those behind the repatriation of remains of more than 60 Māori and Moriori, many of which were stolen by a notorious Austrian grave robber. Right, the professionals of Morning Report are up, up after six, and Corin's here for a quick preview. Uh, morena, Corin. Morena, good morning, Nick. Yes, we'll have the Prime Minister in this morning for her weekly uh, catch-up just after seven. Bit of a focus on Ukraine this morning uh, with New Zealand's reaction to the uh, Russian decision to claim or the annexation of those regions uh, in the eastern area. We'll also talk to James Waterhouse on the ground in Ukraine because uh, we know the Ukrainian forces had some good uh, made some good gains over the weekend with Lyman uh, recapturing that city. So things are happening there. Locally, we'll, we will talk, also talk about low voter turnout talk to uh, New Zealand Herald journalist Simon Wilson about that and other things. Of course, he was... Uh, well, what, what, <laughs> I was going to say, he was in the news recently. He was he? in what the was news because Wayne Brown um, what said off camera uh, uh, candidly, we didn't realise he was being filmed, that he wanted to put photos of Simon Wilson on urinals. Yeah. Um, childish, a, a, really. His first you know. act as mayor, I believe he said. Yeah, you yeah, know, childish stuff, really. Um, yeah, and for a guy who's been around for a while, you know, you're in front of a camera, cameras are rolling, you're mic'd up. You know, <sighs> you know it's it's disappointing. Um, but well, anyway, we'll talk more broadly with him about that. Well, I think you're the cell, you're doing the similar, aren't you, about this the issue yeah. of this low voter Indeed. turnout, which yeah. is uh, which is also uh, not a good thing. Uh, we'll also look at the housing market. Uh, Stephen Adams too. We're going to talk to someone at the Grizzlies about yeah. his contract, awesome. which is exciting. Yeah. Two more years, twenty five million a year. I think it is. Yeah. Um, he's still got quite a bit of value there, hasn't he? Absolutely, he sure does. And the sort of player that, you know, posts stats that don't necessarily show up on the stat sheet. But more on that in Morning Report. Thanks, Corin. Uh, that'll be in 15 minutes' time. Uh, and as Corin said, uh, voting numbers are not looking to flash. And tomorrow is the last day to post your vote if you want to ensure it's counted in this year's local body elections. Uh, Saturday is, of course, D-Day, and it's come down to a two-horse race in the country's biggest city as South Auckland councillor Ephesor Collins and the former Far North District Mayor Wayne Brown make one last push to get the keys to the town hall. As of Friday, September 30, more than 14.6% of people have voted in Auckland. 
We sent reporter Leonard Powell to the heart of South Auckland to find out if people are voting and who they want to see as their new mayor. With less than a week to go until voting closes in the race for Auckland's mayoralty, the views on the streets of Manukau seem to reflect what we've been able to glean from the polls. It's going to be close. As people head off to the library or the busy Westfield Mall, many say they haven't voted or even enrolled, with some not too sure about who's standing. I meet with Colin. She's referring to local councillor Ephesor Collins. Probably being a Pacific Islander, probably need a new face in there. Pacific Islander flair and see what he does. Yeah, hopefully he'll do the best for, for the whole of Auckland. But others aren't so sure. I haven't done it yet. I'm just lazy to be honest. That's about it. I just still have to read all the pamphlets and stuff and sort of decide. Uh, I voted for Beck um, because she's got different policies to everyone else. Did you read that she'd actually pulled out of the mayoralty race? Not till after I voted, unfortunately, but yeah. What do you hope the next mayor of Auckland brings to the city? Um, some changes and doesn't waste money on things like cycleways over the Harbour Bridge. And looks at maybe congestion and healthcare, that sort of stuff. Do you mind me asking who you're going to vote for mayor this year? Yes, if it's so Collins. I will always vote for the person who looks after the people. Always. No. Do you plan on voting this year? No, not really. I don't really get into um, pol- politics. You're not enrolled for it? No, I'm enrolled. I just, no, nah, I'd rather let my go my vote just um, go to default. And do you mind me asking who you voted for mayor this year? Uh, no, that's confidential. Okay. <laughs> this woman tells me she certainly plans to vote, but still doesn't know who to back. Still conflicted as to who to choose, and there's not as much information about every candidate. The ones I've looked at, the popular ones, I don't know. It's a trust feeling. We, we, we talked about it at work today. Just that, that consensus feeling of like, oh, can we trust you? Do your values align with ours? And if they do, are you actually being truthful about it? Or are you just you know, saying it for votes, really? So we're just still stuck in the, hmm, not too sure. This passerby wouldn't reveal who they were voting for, but says the winner will have a big job on their hands. I don't know, instead of just focusing on transport, I think there are other issues that need to be, that Auckland has. I mean, I don't want to, everyone's sort of talking about inflation and living costs with housing being difficult to afford, first-home buyers, rents are pretty high. So it's just looking at other ways to help people and a lot of crime with the smash and grabs going on. So looking at other things that they can make a difference, not just transport. And it's clear that what matters in these elections aren't always the issues that grab national headlines. Really, really missing that there is no swimming pool for ladies. So I was thinking that um, if there was a only ladies swimming pool so that we can go there, uh, being a Muslim, so we can go there and um, enjoy the time and to have some exercise over there. Yeah, and I think it's not only my voice, a lot of uh, ladies, not only Muslim religion, I think other religions, some ladies uh, don't want to go in the mixed uh, gender pools. Yeah. Focusing on those less fortunate is what this on-the-fence voter would like to see. Make things get better for the homeless people who need help, Andy, and the ones who need houses out there suffering, and people like that need more help. Filled out voting papers are to be returned to local post offices, libraries and council buildings, and there are even ballot boxes located in the entrance of most countdown supermarkets. 
While some people I spoke to found the postal voting process to be frustrating and archaic, this voter said it works well for the older crowd. No, it's good, very good. I receive mine in the email. It's better to come in a letter box, that's what a letter box for. Instead of an email on the email, because we don't, we ask, ask our old age, sometimes we don't check our emails. So that's what a letter box on your, at your address to put all your mail in there. If any Aucklanders out there haven't received voting papers in the mail, it's still not too late to enrol. Special voting documents for those not enrolled are available at several service centres and libraries, and special votes can be casted right up until noon this Saturday. You can find out more on the Auckland Council website. Well, after more than a century, the remains of an estimated 64 Māori and Māori many of them stolen by a notorious Austrian grave robber, have been welcomed home by their descendants in Aotearoa. Yesterday's poor fitty at our National Museum, Te Papa, was the result of 77 years of appeals and negotiations with authorities in Austria where they uh, have been held at Vienna's Natural History Museum. Records show that 49 of the ancestors were stolen by Austrian taxidermist and grave robber Andreas Reischek, who spent 12 years in New Zealand from 1877. But he wasn't the only one responsible. It's estimated that the remains of some 64 people made at home yesterday. In a moment, we'll hear from the person in charge of the re- of repatriation at Te Papa. But first, the head of international collections at Vienna's Natural History Museum, that Professor Sabine Eggers, explains how the remains ended up on the other side of the world. He looted them, he stole them, He betrayed people here in Aotearoa in order to get into certain regions that were tapu. And he knew that they were tapu, but he didn't care about it and said and wrote in his diary that he would do it in the name of science. And it was very difficult, very important for him to work in the name of science, (laughs) science. Well, not really science, but okay. And so he collected and and looted very many of them and traded a part of them and exchanged them with other kinds of of objects, of, of ethnographic objects, for instance. And when he went back to Austria, he thought he would be the hero, but he was not. And so he was not, in fact, engaged or had a job at the Natural History Museum as he wished for. And so there was somebody, two persons in fact, who then interceded and were able to buy the collection and then donate this collection to the Natural History Museum in Vienna. So it was quite a complicated and and horrible process, in Mm. fact. But not, not all of these 64 ancestors were stolen by Reichek. There were some other people involved in it as, as well, some years before that and some years after that. But the mindset at that time was this, no? so a very colonialist and a very mean way of dealing with people. That was Dr Sabine Eggers from the Natural History Museum in Austria's capital, Vienna. I asked Te Papa's acting head of repatriation, Tia Rikirangi Mamaku Ironside, to explain why it took so long for the remains to come home. One of the things that we're very familiar with working in this era of repatriation, especially over the last uh, almost 20 years, 
is that you need something of an alignment of stars for these ancestors to start their journey home because at, at various levels, either at the government level or with the directors of these institutions or with the curators of these collections, their journey home can't actually start until you actually get some complete alignment there. And it often takes the support of, uh, of of the curators or the heads of collections to really advocate for those shifts and changes and supports from their directors and their directors to make the recommendation to their boards and then push that up until it's actually at a comfortable point for these ancestors to start their process, which is very, very much the situation here. Mm. Their journey really, really started making traction in 2017 and that was with the with the support and the really hard work and the and the very precise way of um, how the approach towards the providence research to provide a clear context around the theft of these ancestors and and what it actually means to the communities there for them to come home and so you know in that situation this is this is why it's actually taken such a long time but it's not uncommon for, for these various hurdles to be required to be um, to be overcome uh, by our program. And in terms of next steps, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's a forensic identification, obviously, right? And then they'll be returned to their iwi, is that right? Yeah, so the end goal for the repatriation program is indeed the return of uh, ancestors to where they belong to, to their communities of origin. And so at the conclusion of the Pōhiri, when the ancestors are placed into Te Papa's Wahitapu and Sacred Repository, uh, the process of research then carries on because there's been a lot of research that has been undertaken on the Raishik uh, diaries and the Raishik journals and uh, other archival information and sorts of information. But, you know, what's important is we need to actually talk to the communities and to validate that research by having them tell us about the, their different waita. Because uh, Raishik, Raishik wrote, wrote about the um, places of collection, uh, theft, sorry, and the communities in the hapu and the iwi from, uh, from Te Tai Tokero, they know these places better than anybody else. And so it's very incumbent for us to actually have those conversations with them. But it's important for us to actually bring them along the journey with us um, to take their take their tupuna home. I guess could you could you give us an idea of the importance of having these remains back in their homeland, but particularly in the context of, of Maori and Moriori culture? You know, a lot of these ancestors that were taken in the second half of uh, of the 19th century, so uh, 1850, 1860, all the way up to 1882. Yeah. People, are, I believe, are familiar enough with uh, with the history of that. That was a quite a turbulent time for colonial New Zealand, but especially for Maori, especially for Maori who who, who were at the blunt end of uh, of colonialism. Sorry, not the blunt end, the, the, the sharp end of colonialism. And not only having their land confiscated, but also having their ancestors stolen. And as a result of all of this, it's been intergenerational. The pain has been intergenerational, and you can feel that today. You can feel that today with all of the all of the whanau and the hapu and the iwi that came to uh, to see their ancestors, to be able to to be here and to witness the descendants of these ancestors that were taken. It's a heartbreaking experience. But it's also very, very important for cultural institutions like Te Papa and the Natural History Museum to help facilitate the healing of their intergenerational trauma. I imagine 
the answer to this is is probably yes, but other cases of, of remains being taken from Aotearoa and held overseas, are there still instances of this? And as a result of that, will we likely see more repatriations? We do have some pending claims and with institutions overseas, but we also have a number of claims, requests for repatriations that have been approved. But the pandemic's put a little bit of a wrench in our, in our machinery on how we effectively and efficiently and safely undertake these returns home. So, uh, yeah, we do have uh, a number of claims in, in countries and the, throughout the UK, the US and Germany to still be completed. Yeah. So the short answer is yes. Te Papa's Tiariki Mamaku Ironside there. We'll put that full interview up on our website if you want to listen to the rest of it. It is fascinating stuff. Uh, just before we go, a little bit of feedback. Uh, Robert in the Waikato says, to answer both of your feedback questions this morning, get the kids to fill out voting papers, holiday activity, plus you get those papers off the table. Yeah, that's a good idea, Robert, but you want to make sure they're ticking the box you want instead of just, I don't know, drawing who knows what all over the voting papers or on, or, or on the candidates' faces maybe giving them a paint job. Uh, Anyway, uh, tamarillos, cover them with boiling water for a few minutes. They peel easily, slice into into a bowl, sprinkle with sugar. After a couple of hours, they make their own juice ready to eat on wheat bix or ice cream. And they last for ages, apparently. Uh, Des in Wellington hasn't even received his voting papers. That's a bit of a worry. And uh, Glenn says, Giles is spot on about our grocery industry. All we need is more competition. Thanks for all of your feedback this morning. Morning Report is next. We'll see you tomorrow.